Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? I'm great. Let it be known that Derek has committed to not do any more jokes on this show, so... No more jokes. No more jokes, says Derek. If Derek tells a joke, y'all give him a hard time about it. Before we get into this week's Come Follow Me, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thoughts, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in third Nephi now. We just finished the book of Helaman. We are in third Nephi chapters one through seven this week. We are going to be focusing on the writings of Nephi, son of Nephi, son of Helaman. And these will basically be the accounts of the people of Nephi and the Lamanites as well in the time leaning up to the coming of Christ. We're not going to get there in this episode, but we are going to be talking about the, what is this going to be? 30 or so years leading up to the coming of Christ. So, Derek, is there any other uh, theological, literary, or other context you want to give to these chapters before we dive into them? No, I think it's, other than the one one statement of, I think most people know where this is going. We know, we know that Jesus is going to come and visit the Book of Mormon. You know, so I think it's interesting reading it backwards when the people living it lived it forwards. And so just mm-hmm. keep that in mind as we go through this. Yes, sir. Okay, so if it's okay with you, Derek, I'd like to start with just a a couple of verses in chapter one that stood out to me here, just to give you a little bit of context. In the book of 1 Nephi chapter one, verses one through approximately uh, nine or so, we have what appears to be a series of scriptures or a series of verses that lets us know about the sorrow that the people of God are going through right now. Um, One of the most beautiful scriptures in the Book of Mormon to me is actually going to come in verse 13 because it comes at this time of great sorrow in the preceding verses for the prophet Nephi and other believers. Prophecies have been made by Samuel the Lamanite and other prophets, but especially Samuel the Lamanite. And not only are people saying that these are false prophecies where specific specific signs were given to signify the coming of Christ, but also they are saying that if these prophecies don't come to pass within a certain time frame, they're actually going to kill the believers. So what this prompts Nephi to do is to go out and pray mightily to the Lord all day. And this is, I believe, in verse is verse 10 and 11 or so. He prays right, verse 12. Verse 12, okay. He prays all day and all night. And then the voice of the Lord comes to him basically in the 11th hour and tells him, to be of good cheer, that the time is at hand and that the sign will be given. And he's coming tomorrow. That beautiful phrase in 13, on the morrow come I into the world. Like that is just, you have to consider that that the seeds of doubt had been sown, even among some believers given the uproar throughout the land. I can relate super hard to receiving a promise from the Lord and then feeling despair when time passes, things don't happen, and things actually seem to get worse. When my full-time music career ended, I was legit depressed for a bit, and that was even after considering that the Lord had given me a vague prompting of what to do and had spoken peace to me. When time goes by and the world seems to be moving on 
without you in mind, it's easy to become doubtful. In the case of the believers here, their environment was straight up hostile towards them. And for Nephi to pour out his soul and to hear the Lord tell him, I'm coming to earth tomorrow and everything the prophet said, everything my prophet said would come to pass, will come to pass. Everything I said would happen, will happen is just such a powerful thing. I imagine what it would have been like to be alive pre-1978. I have no doubt that I would have received revelation that being in the church is where I need to be, but to continue to be in it without receiving any other assurances for any length of time as my spiritual and social dispossession continues would be a very hard task for me. The closest joy I can imagine to what Nephi and other believers must have experienced during this prayer was what the Black Saints must have experienced in June of 1978. Assurances and affirmations turned into promises and purpose fulfilled and still being fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not, just speaking for myself, it's not that difficult for me to keep faith in light of challenges or waiting or apparent conflicts, but I think that just has to do with my personality and the way I'm grounded in the promises. And so the more adversity I get, the more I actually flourish. I guess it's kind of weird. But what you said reminded me of of something, because in this text, the righteous believers are desperately waiting at the last minute for a miracle that will vindicate them. And this reminds me of the miracle of the gulls, which happened in 1848 in Utah. Okay. And so a bunch of insects came and devoured all the crops of the saints, and they were waiting for a miracle. Like that was all their food that they had. So, James, I would like you to read a poem about this. It's uh, Time for the Gulls by Carol Lynn Pearson. All right. Let's have a look at this. It's time, Father, for the gulls, I think. My arms shake from flailing my field. I sink broken as the little stalks. Beneath their devouring burden, I yield it all to you, who alone can touch all things. It's time, Father, for the gulls. I will be still and listen for their wings. Yeah, much of this poem resonates with those of us who are longing for this just-in-time divine intervention. You know, this... um the narrator in this poem is there like trying to shoo all of the insects away from from what's left of the crop uh, and then just trusting in God and then saying, look, it's time for the gulls and then waiting at the end. And you know, black saints, women in the church, LGBT saints, we have all had long periods of waiting for God's hand to stir up change within the church. For some of this, for some of us, this change will come too late. But I do like that in this poem, the situation is left unresolved deliberately. There's no miraculous happy ending in this poem. We are left sitting and waiting and hoping. And I think there's something precious about naming that place. What do you think? This place in the lack of resolution, you mean? Yes. I mean, there's, like, obviously, that's not how it should, should be. But uh-huh. I think there's a, a place, you know, because so many people, and we do this a lot in the church, is we just rush to the happy ending mm-hmm. and, and don't really sit with grief or death 
or tragedy. We just want to Disneyfy it and make it all pretty mm-hmm. as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. That's part of a cultural thing that really isn't in our sources. Right. I was actually thinking about this, pondering this last night, when thinking about how much frustration people might experience in the midst of waiting for the promises of the Lord to come to pass. And uh, I was thinking about the last two years in particular for me and how I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. I knew what I was supposed to be doing. However, it was just a frustrating experience to watch myself doing all this work and watch myself waiting on a promise that I was sure was going to come, but still not seeing the purpose of it all. And I know that can be like, that is just for me, professionally speaking, that spoke to my frustration, but I can only imagine what this looks like for people who are waiting for a spiritual relief, people who are looking for a temporal salvation, people who are looking for their next meal or people who just want to know that the Lord is looking out for them. That is a much more profound frustration to sit in. I think we as the saints, and I think you're totally right about this, Derek, we're not conditioned to sit in that grief, to sit in that space, to sit in that frustration, because, you know, we have these stories, we know what the endings are going to look like, and perhaps that has an effect on our patients. I don't know. But I do think there are people out there, and uh, hopefully I can count myself among them one day, that can understand that this time, this refiner's fire, if you will, is a necessary step to be tempered to such a degree that we will be ready for those blessings when they come, or at the very least, we will be able to acknowledge them, I suppose, keep ourselves on the path and keep ourselves keep ourselves growing in that time. I can't say I know the reason for all the waiting. Like, I still do not understand God's timetable. I, I don't suppose I ever will understand it in this life. But what I do understand is that when the blessings of the Lord were realized or not realized, that there was a purpose behind all of it. And I have to simply make peace with that. You know... I just want to say two things in response. One is it has to do with what your strategy is when you're when you're confronted with the fact that some people use the scriptures against us, some people use the traditions of the church or the authority of the the prophets or apostles against us. What do we do with that? I think there's two instincts. One is a more liberal instinct of just like throwing away the scriptures and say or throwing away the prophets and apostles. But there's another tactic that digs deeper into our prophetic and apostolic tradition and claims our dignity from that same basis. Uh, Like going back to the Bible and saying, look, you can use it against us, but we can also find our hope and dignity and validation within that same source that's used against us. And another thing about waiting, you talked about God's timetable and we have agency and God's timetable. We shouldn't just say, oops, well, God's going to do it when it's the right time because some of that depends on us. And the one example I have, I have many examples, but I'm just going to, for the sake of time, name one. And this is the issue of the spies in, I think it's Numbers chapter 13, who go into Canaan and they're so scared and they run back out and say, we're going to be you know, this is awful. We're never going to take the land. And even though the Lord said that that was their promised land, they got scared. And that was only two years into their journey. And the Lord said, well, you messed up. And now it's going to be another 38 years before you get into the promised land. So God's timetable depends on us. 
And that's what it is to have a, a living uh, church, one that receives continuing revelation and then God adapts to what's going on. 1978 isn't God's magical time. So much of that happened in response to whether to what we were doing. Right, to what we were doing, but like I think it needs to be said, not to what black people were doing. Yes, what the white leaders of the church were doing. Right. And this is, that was my only uh, hesitance of talking about our role in God's timing. Like I totally agree that a lot of what he does, if not all of what he does, is in response to what is happening on this earth. But I also don't want people to feel like because a certain blessing has not come into their lives that they have acted inappropriately or have always right, acted unrighteously. Right. I was thinking specifically about uh, about the children of Israel when they didn't invade Canaan. That was one of the first examples that was pointed out to me about how God responds to people making poor decisions. That was a 40-year mistake uh, on the part mm-hmm. of the children of Israel. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to need a recalculation that badly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, I've uh, done that on on a number of occasions myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At this point in the narrative, the signs have come. The long day has happened. The stars appeared. The signs that Samuel the Lamanite have, has given unto the people, they have basically happened. But look at what happens in verse 22. And it came to pass that from this time forth, there began to be lyings sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. So I thought about this because a friend reached out to me this morning about racism he was seeing in his uh, social media feeds. Now, I don't recommend any ally ally doing what this friend of mine ended up doing to me, but he directed me to the comment section so that I could see how bad it was. Uh Um, Yeah, like like I need more of this in my life or more evidence that this work is exhausting because that's basically how he introduced it to me. He's relatively new to this work, but basically he came to me saying, this is exhausting. And I'm like, who you telling, first of all? But also, I, I... I looked at the comment section because I was genuinely curious at what he was experiencing that was making him feel so exhausted. And what I saw was people engaging in basically what we see here in verse 22, lying sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe. Do you know what kind of mental gymnastics you got to perform to hear Samuel specifically tell you the signs of the coming, those signs come, and you still don't believe? That is a profound commitment to ignorance, profound commitment. And this is the same thing I saw in this comment section, Derek, which is why I wanted to bring this up. Mm -hmm. It was people refusing to accept evidence that contradicted their worldview and they doubled down on their commitment to their ignorance. I've said many times on this show that racism is a statistically indisputable fact, but then people will come into uh, our comment section or our DMs or other people's comment section and DMs and say that systemic racism is not a real thing. Or they'll say that the whole reason this racism stuff is going on or that the police are harming people is because these people don't comply. This is what a commitment to ignorance looks like. We have explained this so many times. We have given evidence. We have shown people the statistics. We have shared evidence. Anecdote after anecdote, the experience of 86% of black Americans confirm or at least agree that 
institutional racism is a thing, yet there are people who still slide into our DMs or into our comments sections of conversations that we start to complain about our complaints, to complain about the conversation of uh, racism, to complain about the tone with which people have these conversations. This is what I see in verse 22. How are you going to say the sun is not shining while looking directly at it? I think there's a, a circular problem here in that they don't, they deep down don't believe the testimony of black folks because they don't believe in the humanity of black folks. Absolutely. That the, the, the tem- testimony is invalid because they don't know, you, you know, you don't have to trust people. If you don't think they're fully human, you don't think that they get to have a say and you right. think you know better. And I think so much of racism is this idea that white people know better mm-hmm. than black folks mm-hmm. or other folks of color. And so we get mm-hmm. to set the stage and we get to set the rules and mm-hmm. we get to uh, control everything. And that's that's the, literally the systemic racism that they're saying doesn't exist. Correct. Correct. And, you know, I understand this to a degree of why people do this kind of thing. They have to believe, as you said, that black people are not fully human in order to justify their lack of action or their words or their actions, things that continue to dehumanize people of color. This is how they justify their sense of moral rightness. This is how they rationalize their innocence or their complicity. Mm -hmm. I get it. The brain does not like change. The brain does not like to be wrong the brain values efficiency just this is one of the few things i remember from the neuroscience section of my psychology track is how much the brain values efficiency you know i think the part part of the problem is we've as a culture emphasized that racism is wrong yeah but we haven't defined what racism is correct so that leaves room for people who want to feel that they're good people to redefine racism around what will let them off the hook correct this because, was my own, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because they know that racism is wrong. Like, we, we all, well, not all, but you know what I mean. All these people, they'll admit that racism is wrong, and because they know it's wrong, that means they won't be able to see it themselves because the, they see themselves as good people. Right. But, you know, good people can be racist. I Absolutely. Hate, I, I hate to say that. But I don't shoot. Like, that was a lot of people I grew up with. This is when I learned that racist wasn't really an insult or a bad word. It's just a way to describe people, a lot of them good, who simply do things that rob people of their humanity. Obviously, that's less than ideal, but like, right. it is very possible to be a good person and to espouse racist ideology. I've seen it. I see it far more often than I see the hostile the hostile kind of racism i see and that's why it's more insidious and i think we've talked about this a long time ago on the show but basically the kind of racism that hides itself or couches itself in benevolence or couches itself in uh this idea of being a good person that is the more insidious racism because it's harder to spot and it's easier to get away with and that's the kind of racism that actually permeates our institutions the kind Mm -hmm. that says oh we don't have racist laws therefore we can't be a racist country and because we're not a racist country these disparities can be explained away by a fundamental pathological flaw in black people like this is where we are black culture or black i hate that phrase so much i'm just like (laughs) what is culture a function of guys What is culture? It's a function of environment and circumstance. How are you going to blame black culture without acknowledging that this is the situation we have been put in to adapt to? Like, I I hate that phrase so much. I hate when people say black culture because, like, that lets me know they don't even know the definition of that term. They don't know what culture is. They are saying that they think 
poorly of black people without outright saying it. it I hate it so much, but you're totally right. I'm glad yeah. you said that. <laughs> uh, what you got next, Derek? So I don't know if you have anything uh, between now and Third Nephi 4, but I just wanted to name something really quick because it's so important to me and important to you as well. So let's look at Third Nephi 4 verses 31 through 33. So this is after their military success, the Nephites' military successes. And it says, And it came to pass that they did break forth all as one in singing and praising their God for the great thing which he had done for them in preserving them from falling into the hands of their enemies. Yea, they did cry, Hosanna to the Most High God. And they did cry, Blessed be the name of the Lord God Almighty, the Most High God. And their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears because of the great goodness of God in delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. And they knew it was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. Now I'm going to not talk about celebrating a military victory as a because I'm a pacifist, but let's just talk about this idea of singing and rejoicing because a lot of people think of singing as an accessory it's like this extra fluff that is kind of on the side of what we do but i think there's a core in you know if you look at what both what colossians and ephesians say there's a room for singing and praising god and all of the book of psalms and there's something real about that because singing can sustain a people both during their joy and during their grief, and it can unite people at a time of protest or at a time of celebration. There's just, there's there's something there to singing, and we don't get a lot of singing in the Book of Mormon, and I wanted to name that it's here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So when you like said that, I thought immediately of, you know, those who came before the ins- my enslaved ancestors, how many of them turn to music as a means of coping through grief and as a means of uh, resilience or building resilience. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out because that's what's happening here in this time of war. It's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And then white folks appropriated those songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is no American music that is not black music. Yeah. Well. Just, even country. That's not y'all's. <laughs> that is still ours. So I want to get to chapter 4, verses 16 through about 19, I believe. This is the part of the story when Gideonhai, the leader of the Gideonton robbers, has died. Well, he's been killed. And then I, Zeramnihah, I think his name, I don't know what his name is. He's going to be dead in five verses, but we'll go with Zeramnihah. But he tries an interesting strategy now that he's in charge, something that sounds like it's going to be practical at first, uh, to get at the Nephites. There are Two things worth noting in this part of the narrative. Look at what the robbers of Gadianton tried to do to trap the Nephites. Verse 16. They did not come up to battle, but they came on they came up on all sides to lay siege round about the people of Nephi. For they did suppose that if they should cut off the people of Nephi from their lands, they should hem them on every side. And if they should cut them off from all their outward privileges that they could cause them to yield themselves up according to their wishes. These fools, they thought they were slick, trying to surround the Nephites in the wilderness where they can't have any access to their cities, where they can get provisions. But there's, there's two problems with that strategy. One we see in verse 18. Behold, this was an advantage to the Nephites. So right off the bat, we know this is not working. 
It was impossible for the robbers to lay siege sufficiently long to have any effect upon the Nephites because of their much provision which they had laid up in store. These fools really thought they had come up with something by cutting the Nephites off from their cities. They ain't do no reconnaissance because how are you going to try to roll up on people that are more ready for battle than you? How like you, you, you think just because they don't have access to community, access to provisions, access to privileges that they're weak. Zemnariha about to learn the strength of the underprivileged. Now look at what happens in 19 and 20. We see other problems here. And because of the scantiness of their of provisions among the robbers, for behold, they had nothing, save it were meat for their subsistence, which meat they did obtain in the wilderness, it came to pass that the wild game became scarce in the wilderness, insomuch that the robbers were about to perish with hunger. The Gadianton robbers did not have whatever advantage they thought they had. In fact, it was said that this was an advantage to the Nephites at the beginning of verse 18. Now, let's take a moment to liken some things. Like the Nephites, members of marginalized communities are often cut off from their communities, their resources, privileges, or their hurt in other ways, especially in predominantly privileged institutions or groups. But we can be ready for such an onslaught, for such a siege, as it was written in these verses. And often our enemies think that because we don't appear to have the support that they do, or that they would require, that they can lord their power and privilege over us. However, the Nephites were ready for them. Not only that, but the Gadianton strategy was weak, and it was lazy as heck. They knew very little about the Nephites, and they still supposed to take them. How often do we hear non-affirming Mormons repeat the same old arguments about why LGBTQ saints can't have full fellowship. How often do we still hear people compare the priesthood ban to uh, the Levitical priesthood restriction, or first to the Jews, then the Gentiles, or they attribute it to God? I feel like the Lord is trying to tell us here that claiming our own space here, while it is work, could actually be easier than we think, and is very possible that, and it's very possible that we can uh, lay up provisions for ourselves, in, in a manner of speaking. You have, you have regularly talked about how you know the scriptures much better than, than those who would use them against you. And that's how Derek and I have chosen to hold our ground and claim our space. But there may be other ways to do that. So uh, we just got to find find out whatever those ways are for each one of us. I feel like an overarching message, though, in this in this story, as well as the story of Nephi's revelation from the Lord himself in chapter 1, is that the Lord looks out for his believers on the margins. And, well, you just said almost everything. I don't know how I was... You, you said almost everything I would have said. Because you've said it already, Derek. I, I yeah. literally just quoted you for the last however long... Two minutes well, I've been speaking. And I don't know. We might have some new listeners, but let me just tell you. I've been a member of this church almost five years now. I have literally never shed a single tear over homophobia in the church. I'm sure you've never seen me in distress over homophobia, anything people say to me, any of this. Like I've no. been in distress over racism in the church, yep. but never distress over homophobia. And you know why? I literally have several thousand years of experience of God's people immediately in my head. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to look up the verses <laughs> that I, we've talked about these castle texts before, like yeah. having texts that you can go to immediately to have a sense of protection and defense 
and validation and support. And storing up these provisions is essential. And I don't want to blame any LGBTQ person in the church who is suffering and say, well, you you just didn't fortify yourself enough. Right. Because that's not their responsibility. It's not their fault. But I have seen a lot of people start this conversation without much preparation and they they do get hurt mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and that's tough yeah well that's all i wanted to say about that particular verse i just wanted to point yeah, out cool i just wanted to make one point about third nephi five verse four I'm not going to read the whole verse, but it looks like the Nephites take some prisoners, uh, and then what they do with those prisoners is they preach the word of God unto them, and as many as would repent of their sins and enter into a covenant that they would murder no more were set at liberty. So this is really, really curious, because one of the most demonstrable ways that you can articulate someone's equality is to fully include them in God's covenant, right? And I think if you look at the context of 2 Nephi 26, 33, which everyone quotes, all are alike unto God, it's about repentance. It's all are alike unto God in that God calls them all to repentance. And I think that's, people say, well, maybe that's a low bar, but that's actually a high (laughs) bar. Uh That is the best gift we can have is reconciliation with God and inclusion in God's covenant community. And the implications of the statement, all are alike unto God, means that you share the good news with everyone, even those who some might not think should have a chance to be part of God's covenant community. There's some people who don't even think LGBTQ people should have a chance. They say, well, just let them leave the church if they want, which actually just makes it easier on them. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this before. A number of populations in the church are denied either priesthood or the highest ordinances in the temple. And we're still dealing with that. And we're sitting with that and waiting. Just like with the miracle of the gulls. We we were hoping those gulls come really quickly because those crickets are over overburdening overburdening us. Is that a word? Overburdening. It is now. I well, mean, it yeah. makes sense. We'll use it. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. I do. I was actually going to ask you what you thought about the uh, subsequent verse in chapter 6, verse 3. Because, like, this is something that stood out to me in the, in the same context. I'll read it real quick. And they granted unto those robbers who entered into a covenant to keep the peace of the land, who were desirous to remain Lamanites, lands according to their numbers that they might have with their labors wherewith to subsist upon. And thus they did establish peace in all the land. They're giving these people land. They're giving these people, like, I mean, these are the people that have made the covenant of peace and stuff, but I'm just like, that is so profound to give people that you were just at war with, even because they had been willing to enter into a covenant and because they had, uh, what does it say here, entered a covenant to keep peace upon the land, that they were willing to give them some land. Well, to me, it seems logical because if you didn't give them land, and you know, in the in the scriptures at this time, you've land is money. Land is the ability to grow your food. It's the yeah. ability to have intergenerational inheritable wealth. They, there's no stock market back then. Mm-hmm. Everything was land-based. If you had this entire population that didn't have any land, how else are they going to survive unless they start robbing again? Mm-hmm. So giving them land Ooh. is important for the actual sustenance of peace in Ooh. the society. Derek, you just said something, man. Of you course I said something. something. 
Like, like it's logical. This isn't exactly the same as reparations because right because right. these people did did something wrong mm-hmm. and then they were forgiven. Mm-hmm. But the point is, if you set people up for failure, what choices do they have but failure? Mm-hmm. And um and so we need to to get people. And I think there's a a Christian spirit of amnesty that's really in this text of like we've got to just start over. We'll give you land will give you enough so that you can sustain yourself so that you're not tempted to rob again that will that will be actually better for everyone mm-hmm. and i think there's a similar thing around health care if you don't give people health care then those costs will end up squeezed out somewhere else in society mm-hmm. and so that's that's really important to notice i'm so glad you brought that up and i just want to bring up something in the next verse which is starting at verse four so you had verse three and then i'm going to go on to verse four and it says and they began to prosper and to wax great and this is after they gave the repentant robbers some land and then then it says and there was great order in the land and they had formed their laws according to equity and justice this is so important i'm going to say it again (laughs) And there was great order in the land, and they had formed their laws according to equity and justice. That part I have highlighted. They said it right there. Yes, they said it right there. Equity and justice. And um, and then it goes on to say that there was nothing to hinder the people from prospering. Okay. Except falling into transgression. Let's talk about this. Yes, let's talk about it. In this verse, great order is tied to the concept of equity and justice. If you Mm -hmm. don't have equity and justice... Mm -hmm you won't have great order. Mm-hmm. Now, many people now use the term law and order. Oh, uh, damn. Say it. To mean police enforcement of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Law and order is just a code for that. We all know mm-hmm. that, right? But true order in society, according to this verse, according to the word of God, is rooted in actual equity and justice. Mm-hmm. I find the appeal to law and order blatantly hypocritical mm-hmm. so where were the law and order people when the kkk was burning down where black churches it? and black homes mm-hmm. right where were the law and order people when black folks were lynched without trial mm-hmm. and most importantly where are they now when black folks are arbitrarily hunted and killed on our streets with no due process mm-hmm. that's not law and order yes come through that's that's the, the literally the opposite because with like I said this text says that great order is rooted in equity and justice which probably explains why they gave the robbers land when they mm-hmm. repented and I'm gonna quote this amazing activist Bree Newsom Bass she said oh by the way we need to talk about who that is <laughs> yes okay so she, in 2015 she scaled up this flagpole to take down the confederate flag from the S- south carolina state house hero man like i i'm never gonna forget that freaking moment. boss <laughs> and she's a christian and she quoted the psalms like the lord is my salvation of whom shall i be afraid she was not afraid of mm-hmm. those cops who arrested her and she knew she was gonna get arrested mm-hmm. And I think she also quoted the 23rd Psalm um, about, you know, so that she, those were her castle texts. Mm -hmm. She repeated those as she was going up that flagpole and down. But here's what she said recently. She said, I think this was on Twitter. If we're required to comply with police without question under any circumstances or face penalty of death, then we have no civil liberties, actually. I'm going to read it one more time. 
if we're required to comply with police without question under any circumstances or face penalty of death, then we have no civil liberties, actually. Hmm. So we are entering totalitarian territory when an arbitrary group now has the power to force obedience with the threat of death. Police now feel, I shouldn't say now feel because they've always felt this way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Even in the 19th century. Police now feel they have permission to serve as prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner in a matter of seconds with no accountability. That is not law and order. Mm -hmm. Let me say it again. When police become prosecutors, judge, jury, and executioner, that is not law and it is not order. It is chaos. And I just want to look at Third Nephi 6 verses 23 and 24 on this. So here's what it says. Now there were many of those who testified of the things pertaining to Christ who testified boldly, who were taken and put to death secretly by the judges that the knowledge of their death came not unto the governor of the land until after their death. Now behold, this was contrary to the laws of the land that any man should be put to death except they had power from the governor of the land. So we have a parallel here of killing people arbitrarily without due process, who did Mm -hmm. nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. They were killed because of their testimony of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know how Latter-day Saints cannot be on the side of Black Lives Matter, right? I just Mm -hmm. don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Except that Satan has deceived them into not seeing what's right in front of their faces and not seeing our history as a persecuted minority in in the United States. Good call back to the previous text that we just read. So, so yeah, any reactions to this? Just amen, brother. Oh, wow. Wow, maybe I should preach in a black church. Maybe you should, man. Give that a go, shoot. (laughs) That's why we gotta get you back in grad school, bro. Well, let me tell you, let me just tell my, so for people that don't know, my father is a Lutheran pastor, and we had a, a, a pastor's exchange between my father's very white Lutheran congregation and a, um, a missionary Baptist church in Milwaukee. A missionary Baptist church. Yes, a black church. Yo. <laughs> okay. And they decided what we're going to do is ha- switch the preachers. And <laughs> the look on your face is like... I, I feel like I know where this is going, but I just want to hear what happened. And my dad said, well, I mean... Because I'm preaching in two different places, I'm just going to say, I'm going to preach the same sermon no, twice. No, no. He preached the same sermon twice. Okay. He preached it once at the white, at my white church, and then the second week that he preached, it took him twice as long because of all <laughs> the feedback he was getting and uh-huh. all the power that he was getting reflected mm-hmm. back from the audience. Mm-hmm. And like, I hate to talk about a stereotype, but but that's really the way it is. It's the way it is because that that is just our style of worship. Yeah, we so give it feedback. took him twice like, as long so, yeah. to preach the same sermon. Right, man. I, I remember the first time like I said anything in a black church before a large body. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, feedback. I'm not used to this. Yeah, yeah, and, but, but it actually energizes you, and you are a better, better preacher, right? When you, when you have that, right, right, and that was the that was the rush, man. It was just like you get this feedback. You're like, oh, I'm saying something. Let me let me dig into this a little yeah. more. Let and me I dig know, into I, it. I noticed that because of what you were doing just right now, and you've done mm-hmm. this before in the past. I mm-hmm. should do more of that when you're talking. You don't don't force it though. Okay, well, 
<laughs> but anyway, um, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that story because that is a that is a that is a very real thing. What were we talking about just now? We were talking about law and order and, law and, hypocr- order, yes. and hypocrisy. Okay. Yeah, I don't need to add anything to that. I think that's incredible, man. And I'm glad you were able to see that and point that out. We're at a difficult time in the United States right now. I think we're more polarized than we've ever been since the Civil War. For sure, man. And I would say that we're at a civil cold war or a cold civil war, that we're not actually having organized armies fight against each other. But we do have two very polarized groups who are... Are, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just a mess waiting to happen. Yeah. Talking about messes, let's go on to this is this is probably one of the most important texts for me in the Book of Mormon. Out of all of the Book of Mormon, I've you I've relied on this text a lot, and this is Third Nephi six verses ten through sixteen. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize what's going on here. And you you started out with uh, some of the people lifting up into pride, and then you've got riches, and then there were many merchants and lawyers and other people, and then here in verse 12, you have the economic and educational stratification of the Nephites. Very important. And the people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and according to their chances for learning. So look, this is very important opportunity and advantage and riches are all tied together. And this is what is setting up the problem. So, yea, some were ignorant because of their poverty, and others did receive great learning because of their riches. So we here we have the beginnings of systemic inheritance of privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we've got more pride and and other things happening. And then verse 14, there became a great inequality in all the land. And then- So much that the church started to be broken up. Exactly. Yo! And the church should have been one. It's Mm -hmm. the church who should have been the most unifying feature of this culture. Yes, sir. But anyway, so then the you had the economic and educational stratification of the Nephites and it messed everything up. And even still, these... uh, uh, some of the Lamanites here, it says that they would not depart from the, the true faith. But let's look at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, we, we, we want to name the cause of this inequality. And it's right here, literally. Verse 15, now the cause of this iniquity of the pe- of this people was this. Satan had great power unto stirring up of the people to do all manner of iniquity, and to the puffing them up with pride, tempting them to seek for power, authority, and riches, and the vain things of the world. So let's talk about what the cause of the problem was. You know, here and here's something that happens so much, at least in the LGBT world, or I think on any marginalized population. People want to empathize with the suffering of the people. Now, I, I, I kind of... He rolled his eyes yeah, big time. Yeah, <laughs> He mean, didn't kind of roll his eyes. He I rolled did. his eyes all the way like, in the back of his head. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a place for empathy, but that's not the point, right? right? When we want to understand the ongoing existence of a problem, we need to focus on who benefits from the problem and not simply those who suffer from the problem. This is one of the biggest analytical errors of those who are trying to understand the discrimination of LGBTQ people in the church. People focus on like putting an arm around them and saying, we love you and we, uh, we see your suffering, right? 
people focus on those who are suffering from discrimination and not those who benefit from it. And no one, it, it seems like no one but me is asking the question, who benefits from homophobia and transphobia in the church? Because when you look at this economic stratification, it's not blamed on the poor people. It's blamed on those who exalted themselves by wealth and and then had a cycle of perpetuating their privilege in terms of wealth and access to education and access to the propagation of wealth and privilege. Mm. And that is literally what the cause was of this great inequality. It says literally in, in verse 14, it's not just a difference of, of sides, there's a great inequality. And it's blamed not on the people who are suffering, but it's the blame lies squarely on those who pridefully exalted themselves. Mm. And this is the piece that, like I said, people miss. Brilliant. You've got to focus not not on not on the people who who suffer from the problem to in order to fix it. You need to focus on who benefits from the perpetuation of that injustice because if you can figure out how they benefit from it and neutralize that benefit, that injustice will be gone. Mm. Before we move on to our housekeeping items, just wanted to let you guys know that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or lyceum.fm. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Derek, where can people find us? You can check us out at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yes. The handle for the Instagram and Twitter? BTBLDS. Correct. That is where you guys can find us. Uh, announcements, uh, events? Yeah, so we have the Affirmation Conference coming up, which is really accessible this year, both in terms of cost and now it's online. So for $39, you can uh, register for the conference. It will be held over several weekends in September and October. Uh, go to conference.affirmation.org to register or to find more info. Conference dot conference.affirmation.org. Okay, sweet. Uh, something also coming up is Derek and I will be speaking at the Colorado Faith Forum. This is September 18th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. If you guys want more information, they do have a Facebook page, Colorado Faith Forum. Just search it on their uh, Facebook page and you can find some more information about it, presumably there. But yeah, Derek and I will be speaking there. They're calling the event Two Ways the Scriptures Make Room for All, Centering the Marginalized in Mormonism. It's very much us, so definitely... It's us. Yes. Derek will have some remarks, I'll have some remarks, and it'll be a very good time. Um, one more thing I wanted to let you guys know about. If you're in the DMV area, this is going to be online anyway, but especially for those of you in the DMV, the Race in the Book of Mormon Studies series is happening September. Well, it's happening right now, like every Sunday for like the next six weeks, eight weeks or so. 
but basically it's going to be an event where there's going to be speakers who talk about race and the Book of Mormon, have a conversation about it. But I'll also be speaking on the 27th if you guys want to tune into that. That is going to be September 27th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I will find the link and I'll put it in the show notes for those of you who want to show up. Should be a good time. Any other events or? Nope, that's it. All right. So last announcement we got here is uh, we've been talking about our Globe page for a while. Just want to thank you guys who have felt uh, so inclined to be part of our community in this way. People who have decided to throw a couple of coins at us, help us be able to sustain the work that we're doing. If you guys want to contribute or if you want to be part of this community, you can do so at glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. And if you guys contribute anything, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback, provide ideas for the show, access our notes, and a lot more. If you don't got no coins to throw at us, you can always just share the page or share our content with people. Let us know that you've done so, and we'll more than happily let you into the community. We just want to make this as accessible to anybody who wants to have a more direct hand or more direct access to Derek and I. With that, we also want to thank our friends Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, as well as Eden Wen for being a boss on our social media. Thank all of you guys. You are all rock stars, and we greatly appreciate y'all. Anything else we got to put out there, Derek? No, that's it. All right, then with that, thank you guys for listening to us and tuning in. Always a pleasure till we meet again next week. Yeah, I'm so excited to see you again next week.